This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Legendary, brilliant, intellectual, inventive, sweetly naive. These are just some of the words that have been used to describe Milton. I use Milton's first name intentionally, but with no disrespect, as like John, Paul, Mick, or Keith, his name is instantly recognizable. Milton Glaser is very much the superstar of our business. Yes, Milton designed the Dylan poster and the I Love New York icon. Yes, his work both collectively as part of Pushpin or New York Magazine or WBMG and individually in his eponymous studio has meaningfully inspired generations of designers and thinkers. But many designers have done that. Many designers have created cool posters and beautiful, compelling book covers and powerful logos. Milton Glaser has done all of that and then some. Milton Glaser has actually lifted this age he inhabits that we all inhabit, allowing us all to walk on higher ground. And it is really that for which we should be especially grateful. Milton has often talked about the confusion many people have about what is meant when we use the word art. He has suggested that we eliminate the word art and replace it with work. He then came up with the following descriptions, and I'd like to share them with you. The sad and shoddy stuff of daily life can come under the heading of bad work. Work that meets its intended need honestly and without pretense we call simply work. Work that is conceived and executed with elegance and rigor we call good work and work that goes beyond its functional intention and moves us in deep and mysterious ways we call great work. Milton Glaser is a creator of great work. He is also, dear listeners, a great man. What is so unique and precious is that he has achieved his greatness honestly and authentically, without gimmicks, without hype, without artifice. His work has a purity and an elegance that is timeless and profound and dazzling. Welcome to Design Matters, Milton. It is an honor to have you here. Debbie, you're so embarrassing. If I had known you were going to give me an introduction of that sort, I never would have agreed to come on this broadcast. (laughs) Why do you think I didn't tell you? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Oh, it's heartfelt. It's totally, totally true. Well, that I don't know. But in any case, we're here. Yes, we are. So, let me ask you a couple of questions. One of my favorite things you have authored is a piece called The Twelve Steps in the Road to Hell. 
in this piece, you have described a questionnaire that you designed to see where you stood in terms of your own willingness to lie. Um, you said that you created this when you were working on doing the illustrations for Dante's Purgatory. How did you come up with the questions? I'm going to read the questions for our listeners in a moment, but I'm just curious how you came up with the questions. Well, I, uh, it's interesting. I was doing the illustrations for... Uh, for the Divine Comedy, specifically for the section called Purgatorium, uh, which I was a little disappointed about uh, getting to illustrate because I thought hell would be more interesting, except then I realized that Purgatory is where we all are, somewhere between hell and heaven. And um, the great distinction between Purgatory and Inferno or hell is that the people in Purgatory know what they have done, and the people in hell do not. So those in hell haven't got a chance of getting out. The people in purgatory somehow can get out of it. At any rate, I was just thinking that um, everything that you do is a either a step to going into hell or getting out of it. And I thought that in our business, which is the communication business or the design business or in some cases the advertising business where I think the questions become most egregious, uh, in our business, we are always in a situation of transmitting ideas to a public. And if we apply the idea of doing no harm to what we do, because we have some responsibility to that public, we have to look at the nature of the message that we are sending out into the world. So I thought I would start, and I don't know if you want to read all of these, it's awfully long, but I thought I would start with benign things that you do, which are quite acceptable to most practicing professionals. Uh, such as making a package look larger on a shelf. Right, that's number one. Number one. That sort of comes under the general heading of professional practice, and while it is misrepresentation of a certain kind, but you also discover that misrepresentation is an attribute of design because you're always dramatizing things, um, it still is something that you could justify and cause as little pain. And what I tried to do in the road to hell was to increase the problem every time so that at a certain point you realize you're really creating mischief. Right. And the question is on a personal level, and it's here, it really is personal, where will I stop? What will well, I not do? And I had to ask that question first of myself and I find myself going down the road a bit and then I realized that it was a certain point that I would go no further. So it's an interesting thing. It's very personal. People respond very differently to it. Um, in terms of at what point do they feel that their conscience or their sense of ethics will not permit them to go any deeper. And you find that varies, uh, varies by age, it varies by vocation, and it certainly varies by individuals. So. Well, I'm going to read them very quickly for our okay. listeners. So number one is designing a package to look bigger on the shelf. Number two is doing an ad for a slow, boring film to make it seem like a lighthearted comedy. Number three is designing a crest for a new vineyard to suggest that it has been in the business for a long time. I can say, yep, I've done those. Uh, number four, designing a jacket for a book whose sexual content that you find personally repellent. Number five is designing a medal using steel from the World Trade Center to be sold as a profit-making souvenir of September 11th. That's a, three, true, uh, a true incident, incidentally. Really? So you know a designer that did that? No, no, no. I know a company that uh, that uh, promoted it. 
Number six, designing an advertising campaign for a company with a history of known discrimination and minority hiring. And I'm wondering if how many um, ad advertising executives even would investigate uh, whether or not their clients do that. Uh, number seven, designing a package for children whose contents you know are low in nutrition value and high in sugar content. Mm, I could say, yep, I've done that. Number eight, designing a line of T-shirts for a manufacturer that employs child labor. Number nine, designing a promotion for a diet product that you know doesn't work. Number ten, designing an ad for a political candidate whose policies you believe would be harmful to the general public. Number eleven, designing a brochure for an SUV that turned over frequently in emergency conditions known to have killed 150 people. And number twelve, the twelfth step in the road to hell, designing an ad for a product whose frequent use could result in the user's death. So, Milton, where do you net out numbers-wise? Well, I'm kind of, I hover around the, the uh, top five mm -hmm. uh, before I really um, uh, find that I, I can't move on professionally. If you are uh, really stringent about causing no harm, you almost can't step into the bath. Right. I mean, it, it's almost impossible to start if you have a very firm conviction that you will do nothing to harm another creature. So a lot of this is relative. A lot of ethics are relative. But there are some questions, of course, that are slightly uh, difficult to deal with. For instance, the question of child labor. Maybe someone could counter the argument about supporting somebody who hires child laborers with the fact that these children would have no work at all if it weren't for the people who hire them for this purpose, and would you rather they had no work or would you rather have them work at a very low income? That becomes a kind of, as ethical questions usually are, a complex ethical question and not easily answerable. On the other yeah. hand, causing somebody's death doesn't seem to me complex at all. If you're willing to do it, it means something about your distance from those people and the fact that you don't think of them as human. And that is a different um, a different issue, but as we have discovered in something like cigarette advertising, which is an obvious culprit, but there are others, there are many, 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 many people who mm -hmm. are perfectly willing to do it. One of the curious things I discovered in the class last year was that while out of a class of 20 kids, three were willing to work on something that caused the user's death. I think in this case they were mostly thinking of cigarettes. Mm -hmm. But no one in the class was willing to support a company that employed child labor. Mm. Thinking, wait, wait, wait. What do you think that is about? Well, I think it's a, a kind of social trendiness mm. that the world um, is full of mischief, but child labor is kind of an easy and popular way to make you appear perhaps moral or moralistic in any case. But I, why somebody who would be willing to cause the death of another would not be willing to work for a company employed child labor requires a certain stretch of the imagination. Well, I know of a very prominent designer who has actually publicly gone on the record with saying that, um, well, yeah, take the money from the cigarette marketers, do the project, but then give all the money to cancer research. And, and that seems a little bit of a slippery slope to me, but I think that ultimately 
his point of view is that it's not about moral decisions in, in doing the work. It's really about people making their own personal choices. Um, do you find that it's easier now for you to say no at this stage in your career to projects, or have you always adhered to your political principles uh, over the years that you've been practicing design? Well, I've always had principles, and I've always tried not to do harm. I think that was not uh, something that occurred to me late in life because I've always had a sense, basically since I was growing up as a kid in a very left-wing um, area uh, that you had to be connected uh, to a society that you were not only to pursue your own life and your own advantage. And so that sense that there is a community and there are others and that you only um, that you can only succeed by pursuing your own objectives is not an attractive idea to me, nor has it ever been an attractive idea. I don't think it becomes easier as you get older or as you get more successful. Quite the contrary. In fact, sometimes the the contradictions simply become more attenuated. I think you begin to develop a sense of what you're willing to do in life. And, of course, all decisions of that kind are individual and personal. So you can be very moralistic and say people should do this and people should do that. But ethics are personal. So if somebody doesn't feel uncomfortable doing something, um, they have to come to terms with that in terms of the way they live their life. Well, I'd like to come back to this uh, topic after our break. Uh, I'd like to let everybody know that you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am Debbie Millman, and my guest today is Mr. Milton Glazer. We will be right back with our broadcast after these messages. Please don't go away. Fresh, dynamic, and totally prepared for continuing business education. Business Talk Radio. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. Hi, I'm Rob Wallace. My partners and I run one of the country's premier brand identity and packaging design consultancies, Wallace Church. And if you're like me, you've already become an avid fan of the program that you're listening to, Design Matters. And if you're like me, you want more. You want a deeper dive into some of the strategic and creative issues that have inspired design and affect consumer buying behavior. You want to engage the speakers on a one-to-one basis. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we are in luck. Through the Institute of International Research, a three-day conference is being held in Manhattan's Grand Dom on April 18th through 20th. The conference name is FUSE, and its focus is on the synergy of brand strategy, design, and performance. It promises to be the year's most informative brand identity industry event. Debbie Millman of Design Matters will join Cheryl Swanson to host an elite group of brand identity thought leaders from the marketing, design, and consumer insights worlds. You'll hear from Mary Ann Pesch, the president of Gillette Company's personal care division, on the identity strategies that have shaped some of the most successful world brand launches. Design Matters guests Professor Grant McCracken will analyze the cultural trends that affect consumer interactions with brands. Stanley Hainsworth, global creative director of Starbucks, will be sharing the critical role that design played in the success of that brand phenom, and I will be moderating a panel of corporate design leaders from Nestle, Unilever Foods, Sharing Plow, and the retailer CVS, where you can directly engage them with your questions. This event is dedicated to delivering the most forward-thinking and inspirational as well as real-world and actionable criteria into how you can optimize brand identity in your organization. It is simply not to be missed. For more information, call 888-670-8200. That's 888 888- 
670-8200 or visit www.iirusa.com backslash BIPD for brand identity package design. Again, www.iirusa.com backslash BIPD. Mention Design Matters and receive a $200 discount off the standard fee. I look most forward to meeting you on April 18th at the Plaza here in New York City. Tune in every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time for Big Business Marketing for Small Business Budgets. Big Business Marketing for Small Business Budgets is completely dedicated to helping small businesses thrive and be more profitable. On the show, learn leading practices for bonding emotionally with customers and securing lifetime loyalty. This one-of-a-kind talk show is hosted by Jeanette McMurtry, author of the book, Big Business Marketing for Small Business Budgets, and John Cooper, veteran marketing and leadership consultant. Together, they will keep you up to date on marketing trends and how to create passionate customers for life. So log on to Big Business Marketing for Small Business Budgets with Jeanette McMurtry and John Cooper. Every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business. This is Voice America Business. Welcome back to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you would like to be a caller on the show, dial toll-free at 1-866-233-7861. Once again, that's 1-866-233-7861. And now, back to the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back, everybody. It is 3.20 Eastern Standard Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, live from the Empire State Building in New York City. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the esteemed, brilliant, and very lovely Mr. Milton Glazer. If you'd like to join our conversation, and here's your chance to actually speak to Milton directly. If you have a question for him, please call 1-866-233-7861. Before the break, Milton, we were talking about your 12 steps in the road to hell, and in in thinking about what you said during the break, I was really quite... um, I was moved by the idea that your students would actually say, no, I wouldn't do work for a company that employs child labor, but I would actually do work for a company that contributes to the death of the user. Um, What was your response to the students when you heard that? Well, I don't know what to say about something like that. And, uh, again, when you uh, do something like this, what you don't want to do is put it in the context of your own experience. What you want the student to do is basically examine what they believe in and to raise the question for themselves, why do they believe that it's okay to participate in, say, cigarette advertising where somebody dies and why they would draw the line at not working for somebody who employed child labor, which is a much more ambiguous mm-hmm. and, uh, at least uh, ethically speaking, a much more ambiguous act. Um, the only thing you could do in a case like this is basically raise the issue and just hope uh, in a Socratic way that the student will ask themselves, well, why, why am I willing to do this and not willing to do that? Mm-hmm. Um, you basically can only lead them to the question, I think and hope that um, it will serve as a basis for thought and, and uh, evaluation. You were uh, part of a group of original designers that created the First Things First Manifesto back in 
1964, and then you re-signed the document in 2000. And for our listeners that might not be familiar with the manifesto, this was a document originally written by British designer Ken Garland with 21 of his design colleagues. And the manifesto boldly encouraged students, designers, and teachers to reconsider their opportunities outside what he then referred to as the noise and high-pitched scream of consumer selling in favor of applying their talents to promote education, culture, and a greater awareness of the world. And at the time, this was not intended to advocate the abolition of contemporary design, but it was simply a call for the reevaluation of our profession's priorities. Milton, do you feel like this manifesto is still relevant? Do you feel that designers really think about this or even consider it when doing their work? Well, I, I, I couldn't really answer that because um, I have a, a relatively small circle of people that I know who uh, would uh, be involved in that or think about it. But I just want to correct one thing. I was not involved in the original. Oh, you weren't. Creation. I'm sorry. No, I, I missed no. I miss, But uh, I did Brenda. sign the second iteration, which okay. is, I don't know when that was, about 10 years ago, uh, where the, it sort of resurfaced and became an issue again. It, it, I have complex feelings about it. Um, I totally agree with one aspect of it, which is designers should be responsible for what they do and that well, you should be aware of the consequences of your work. You don't want to go through life deflecting what the reality of what you do in life. So um, I'm a great believer in simply observing what is, and if you don't want to change your behavior, at least you know what your behavior is. So from that point of view, I think it's necessary for designers to be aware of what they do when they are participating in misrepresentation or causing someone's death. They should simply know that's what they're doing mm-hmm. and not pretend that they have no role. On the other hand, they may not want to change their behavior, and that's a separate issue. Well, I also think it is determined by what their priorities might be in their lives in terms of being comfortable with um, a political point of view or really being persuaded and, and compelled more by financial gain. Well, I mean, if your child has to be sent to school, you know, if you do something, you're going to lose your job and you are trying to evaluate the meaning of your life and its effect on others within your family and your relationships to a larger public, well, obviously you're going to have a very different sense of that if your life is in jeopardy because of something you might do, as Mm -hmm. if you're comfortable. But all those issues are inevitably personal. So all you can do is set the stage for awareness. You say, here's what you're doing, and take it from there, and not basically impose a kind of set of judgments on people as to exactly what they should be doing. My problem with the, I have to say this, and I've said it before, with the manifesto, is that it doesn't give any people uh, people any place to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, it, it says, um, why don't you work for schools, universities, uh, cultural institutions, so on, without the recognition that that only forms you know, 5% of the total economic opportunity for people. If that, yes. If that. So the real question is, what are you going to do if you basically are in business and you're participating in a capitalist enterprise which serves to maximize profits above all things? And what is your role in that case? Certainly, um, going elsewhere 
is a uh, alternative, but in most cases, it is a nominal alternative. People don't have the opportunity to go elsewhere. So the real question for most of us is staying within the system, understanding that we are in a profit-making capitalist economy. What do you do? And that is a more uh, complex issue than simply only working for uh, universities and cultural institutions because most people simply don't have that option. So my problem with uh, uh, first things first is that it doesn't provide real alternatives for people who have to survive and live. But on the other hand, it does raise all these questions that have to be raised in terms of the meaning of what you do. So I, I kind of feel... Uh, um, ambivalent uh, uh, about the manifesto. I signed it, and I would sign it again, but I think it has to uh, present a, a deeper and more thoughtful idea of what people's alternatives are. Okay. Uh, Milton, we have a caller, Mike from New York. Uh, you're on the air. Uh, hi, Ms. Milton. Hi, Mr. Glazer. Thank you for this opportunity to talk to you. Sure. Um no, it's, it's interesting that you wrote um, the 12 steps in the road to hell based on Dante's purgatory, um, which the, the central theme is really about free will. Um, and, and first a comment, then a question. Um, I would guess that perhaps your students' reaction to the list might be due to the fact that um, designing an ad for a product whose frequent use could result in the user's death leaves the free will up to the user. They could choose um, to or not to use that product in the case of cigarettes. Um, whereas uh, designing something for a manufacturer that employs child labor is sort of outside of the realm of free will. Uh, I'd be interested in your, your opinion on how design and marketing affects free will and sort of what the responsibilities of a designer is within that context. Well, it's an interesting uh, question and a difficult one, but if, um, if part of your belief is to do no harm, and I... Uh, that is part of my belief. I, I, I think it's a little different than a doctor's responsibility or a lawyer's responsibility, but maybe, maybe not. Maybe it isn't any different than a doctor's or a, loyal or a lawyer's responsibility. But if you have a kind of vision of yourself as doing no harm, then it becomes difficult to do harm. It becomes difficult even with the kind of maybe at least partial cop-out of the fact that people have the option to either drink or not drink or smoke or not smoke. You just don't want to be participant in the process. You know, it just makes me feel better to know that what I am doing does not have the consequence of hurting someone, even when they choose to be hurt. So uh, from my point of view, uh, the issue of free will here isn't, um, it doesn't justify my participate uh, my participation is something that would harm someone I think that that could also be used as a, a fairly um, self delusional way of rationalizing doing something just for the sake of of being able to do it um, I, that's arguable but that's my opinion sure. yeah and, and and I guess in the same spirit it's hard to draw the line on uh, what injures someone who can make the argument that the capitalist society in general is, is injurious to, to society. Well, I think you could make that case, but then I think you have to choose either to work within it or to work against it. And I think as long as you understand that you are, as I said, the most important thing to acknowledge what is, right? To acknowledge what you do, 
to acknowledge what you are, to acknowledge how you feel. It's very difficult, but that is the first step uh, towards change is acknowledgement. So from my point of view, that is the most critical thing that has to occur. To begin the process of change, you have, or to go on a journey, you first have to understand where you are. And I think part of understanding of where you are is to acknowledge what it is you do. I might say the other thing about it when you talk about uh, free will and and uh, and giving people the opportunity to either commit suicide or not is that it also depends on your sense of the other and your sense that there are people there who you have a relationship with. I think if you could raise the question, would you do this to your children? Would you do this to your cousin? Would you do this to your friends? Would you do this to your neighbor? And you see that even though free will exists, you wouldn't. Only when you get to a great distance, which is to say when the people become markets instead of human beings, are you willing to say, well, it's their choice after all. They can take it or leave it. It's only at that point where basically you no longer identify with those people emotionally or spiritually that you're well, willing to engage in the argument that after all they have free will, they could do it or not. You wouldn't do that with your child. That's interesting. I think that um, we will come back to this topic after our break, the idea of free will. Mike, thank you for calling. Uh, everybody, you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America. I will be right back with Milton Glazer. You're listening to The Bottom Line in Business Talk, Voice America Business. Good afternoon. I'm Pamela DeCesar of Brand Muse, and I'm excited to talk with you about the upcoming Brand Identity and Package Design Conference in April in New York City. I've been involved in this event for a number of years and love the yearly discussions that examine marketing, design, research, and production trends and get to the heart of the most pressing issues facing us in the industry today. Discover the reality of design in corporate America and the paradox of packaging. Design gurus Bruce Mao and John Maida, along with brand leaders from Gillette, General Mills, and MTV, will go in-depth into the most pressing issues we face and will deliver cutting-edge ideas that demonstrate brand growth and bottom-line impact through innovative strategy and design. Highlights this year include a dynamic multi-speaker symposium focused on capturing the global market, more speakers and sessions than ever before, Two new interactive workshops on making better color choices and breaking out of the box to achieve packaging innovation. A panel discussion on how two functions, creative and research, can work together effectively. Plus a cocktail party to connect and network with colleagues and friends. For more information, call 888-670-8200 or visit www.iirusa.com backslash BIPD or email register at IIRUSA.com. Mention that you heard about the event from Design Matters and receive a $200 discount off the standard fee. So rise to the challenge. Consider this conference an investment in your brand's future. Clear your calendar and prepare to walk away with inspiration, insight, and creative new ideas to implement when you return to the office. 
So see you in the Big Apple at the Plaza, April 18th through the 20th. Do you find that technology is hard to understand? Tune in each week to Tech Talk with computer geek John DeVore. Every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific, John will let you know what is new and upcoming in the world of technology, as well as teach you some simple things to help you use your computer to your advantage. From gadgets to gizmos and PCs to PDAs, tune in and get high tech with John DeVore and Tech Talk every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific, right here on the bottom line of business talk, Voice America Business. Technology is changing the way we live our lives and how we do business. On Managing Technology the Right Way, we'll talk about the benefits of technology and the great things it allows us to do, as well as its associated risks. Heard every Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, Sun Jogal, the host of Managing Technology the Right Way, will interview business leaders and other experts that have shaped the way we use technology. If you want to keep up with the changing world of technology, listen to Managing Technology the Right Way with Sun Jogal every Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time right here on BusinessAmericaRadio.com. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business. This is Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 1-866-233-7861. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.34 Eastern Standard Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, live from the Empire State Building in New York City. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the magnificent Milton Glazer. If you'd like to join our conversation, if you have a question for Mr. Glazer, please call us at 1-866-233-7861. And Milton, we actually have another caller, Kim from New York. You're on the air. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Milton. Hi. Um, a question on a bit of a lighter note for you guys. Um, <laughs> well, it's rumored that a fellow designer named their cat after you. And what I wonder is, how does that make you feel? <laughs> Actually, Milton, I know that designer. It's Jonathan Selikoff. He named his cat Milton after you. I think he named his other cat Seymour, if I remember this story correctly. Well, it's funny. Well, I don't know how it makes me feel. I guess, <laughs> I guess it makes me feel. Please, because I'm a cat lover and I have a cat, I uh, I consider it a term of uh, affection, so it makes me happy. Well, thank you for calling, Kim. Um, well, this this is an, actually a nice time to bring up the fact that you were just featured in a wonderful film made by Hillman Curtis for Adobe. Um, and I spoke to Eshwini earlier to get the direct link for people to go to to view the film, and they could go to www.studio.adobe.com for a really, truly inspiring and beautiful film that Hellman Curtis has made for Adobe featuring um, Milton. And in the film, you have a number of really moving and profound quotes. Uh, two of my favorites are these. No one has the ability to understand our path until it is over. And if you can sustain your interest in what you are doing in your later years, you are very lucky. Many people get tired, indifferent, and defensive and lose their capacity for astonishment. And Milton, you've indicated in the, in the film that you have not lost your capacity for astonishment. What astonishes you and how do you sustain that astonishment in your life? I don't know how you uh, how you sustain it, and uh, I could say almost everything astonishes me. <laughs> Daily life astonishes me. 
I'm looking uh, through the door here uh, uh, at a little table and chairs that was painted a light green and yellow, and there's a plant on the table, a little pussy willow, and the combination is totally astonishing. I mean, uh. you know, shadows in the night astonish me. That, and when you're working and you're you're um, putting uh, forms out on paper, and every once in a while you'll be astonished by what happens. I mean, the, the great thing about work, and particularly work later in your life, is, is that you can still maintain the sense of possibility that uh, at the end of the day you will know something that you didn't know at the beginning of the day. And I just find that an extraordinary gift. I always thought about in early life our objectives um, are all at least uh, certainly people in uh, the design profession were to become professional. We wanted to be professional, and we wanted our work to look professional, and we wanted to have that veneer and that sense of um, authority that we saw around us. And it was all we really wanted to do. You know, you got out of school, and you wanted to have your work look like these marvelously put-together, slick, effortless things that uh, were in the world and uh, you admired the people who could do that and so on. And then at a certain point, you reach professional level and your work looks like that and you realize it's not enough. That uh, merely uh, getting to a point where your work looks good enough to be called professional is only the starting point. Um, I use the same uh, uh, metaphor for learning how to draw because when you start to learn how to draw, incidentally, uh, uh, I hope that it is something that a practice that is coming back a little bit. I think it may be because it has been neglected in our profession for so long. But when you mm -hmm. start to draw, you are so overwhelmed with the difficulty of making things look like what they are. You know, you have a cup and a saucer and you try to make it sit on the page and look like a cup and a saucer, and you almost die trying to control your nerve endings so that <laughs> the object looks like it's supposed to. And you spend years doing that, and finally you get to the point where you can actually draw something that looks like what you're drawing, right? And then you discover that's not the point that being able to make a drawing that looks like its subject is nothing, that that is only the starting point. Now you have to ask yourself, well, how can I do good drawing or expressive drawing or drawing that means something? Because the ability simply to make it uh, accurate is uh, a low-level ability, even though it's taken you years to get to that point right. and then to discover it's not very relevant, but there's no other way to get there. And the same thing is true of you know your own work. You sort of strive to make it look good and make it look as good as your peers and to make it as look as good as the other things in the art director's annual and so on. And then at a certain point, if you continue and persevere, you realize that's not good enough. You've got to go beyond that level in order to engage that other thing, which is true expressive content. Well, I, meaning, right? Yeah, I, I read that one of your um, influencers was Pablo Picasso, and one of my favorite quotes of his is that um, he said that 
he could paint like a master at 15, but it took until he was in his 90s to be able to paint like a child. And well, I that, 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 that really is something that has uh, uh, unfortunately been very mischievous to people who think when they draw in a primitive way, they're doing what Picasso got. Oh, yes. Well, yeah, or Cy Twombly or Jean, you know, Jean-Michel Basquiat, right. I know. Right. There's a great article about that in, in The New Yorker about Cy Twombly and his sort of the way that he was able to, you know, how hard it was for him to actually draw lines that were perfectly, wonderfully random and um, formless and, and how really difficult that is. It's in the March 7th issue of The New Yorker. Um, Milton, we have a call, another caller. Sure. Steve from New Jersey, you're on the air. Sure. Hello, Mr. Glazer. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you. Thank you. I really enjoyed reading the 10 things I've learned that you wrote a few years ago. And uh, one of my questions is regarding number six, which is titled, Style is Not to be Trusted. And amongst other things, it speaks to the perpetual challenge that designers face in adapting to and considering visible changes in style while still maintaining their own distinct style. My question is, what advice can you give to designers today for dealing with this challenge, particularly in commercial disciplines such as package design? Well, it's a, it's a complex, but I think very relevant question. I mean, um, the, in our profession, you have to watch what's going on because at least part of our profession is vernacular and, and it relates to everything else that's happening. There is the style of the moment. There's a cycle of style that sort of changes a little bit every 10 years, right? And the work doesn't quite look the same as it did 10 years ago. There is a relationship to fashion in our work, and then there's the other relationship to what you might call more permanent or more classic values. And we all have to kind of balance the fact that we have a commitment to an idea about our own capabilities, and then we have the style at the moment. Now, there, there really is a question, what is our relationship to changing style? Shall we do what everybody else is doing? Shall we try to be a year ahead of what everybody else is doing? Shall we follow a year behind what everybody else is doing? Part of that is optional, and part of it has to do with watching the Art Director's Annual and the AIGA and seeing what's hot and trying to emulate it. The other part is basically doing what I think is more relevant, is to start with content and not worry about style, and have style follow, which is to say you always find the core of what you want to say and convince people of, and then try to express that in a way that is appropriate. So in my idea of, um, of what the field is, appropriateness is really a big kind of word here. Now, appropriateness also has to take into consideration the style of the moment, but it is not the governing issue, right? You try to say, here's what's going on, here's a good way to do it, and you kind of try to reconcile those two things. If you follow the current of style, you end up in a place where um, at a certain point you can no longer follow. And then the question is, well, what have you got? Does that answer your question, uh, yes. your listener? Yes, thank you very much, Mr. Glazer. Sure. Well, thank you very much. Um, Milton, I'm going to take this opportunity for us to go to our final break of the show. Uh, I'd like to let our listeners know that they are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am Debbie Millman, and my guest today is Milton Glazer. We'd love to speak with you if you'd like to call us, 1-866-233-7861. 
When we come back from our break, I'll be talking with Milton about some of his latest work. Please don't go away. More and more people are starting their day with informative, focused business talk. Top experts. Today's business issues. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. Hi, I'm Rob Wallace. My partners and I run one of the country's premier brand identity and packaging design consultancies, Wallace Church. And if you're like me, you've already become an avid fan of the program that you're listening to, Design Matters. And if you're like me, you want more. You want a deeper dive into some of the strategic and creative issues that have inspired design and affect consumer buying behavior. You want to engage the speakers on a one-to-one basis. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we are in luck. Through the Institute of International Research, a three-day conference is being held in Manhattan's Grand Dom on April 18th through 20th. The conference name is Fuse, and its focus is on the synergy of brand strategy, design, and performance. It promises to be the year's most informative brand identity industry event. Debbie Millman of Design Matters will join Cheryl Swanson to host an elite group of brand identity thought leaders from the marketing, design, and consumer insights worlds. You'll hear from Mary Ann Pesch, the president of Gillette Company's personal care division, on the identity strategies that have shaped some of the most successful world brand launches. Design Matters guests Professor Grant McCracken will analyze the cultural trends that affect consumer interactions with brands. Stanley Hainsworth, Global Creative Director of Starbucks, will be sharing the critical role that design played in the success of that brand phenom. And I will be moderating a panel of corporate design leaders from Nestle, Unilever Foods, Sharing Plow, and the retailer CVS, where you can directly engage them with your questions. This event is dedicated to delivering the most forward-thinking and inspirational, as well as real-world and actionable criteria into how you can optimize brand identity in your organization. It is simply not to be missed. For more information, call 888-670-8200. That's 888-670-8200. Or visit www.iirusa.com backslash BIPD for brand identity package design. Again, www.iirusa.com backslash BIPD. Mention Design Matters and receive a $200 discount off the standard fee. I look most forward to meeting you on April 18th at the Plaza here in New York City. Join Jane Curry and Diana Young every Monday at 8 a.m. for The Last Word. When you listen to The Last Word, you won't feel as though you're getting a root canal without anesthetic. And you'll leave every show with tips about how to write so you can get more promotions, make more money, and go home early. Learn how to add persuasive power to everything you write, from email to sales proposals, and get the praise and respect you deserve. So tune in and call in to The Last Word with Jane Curry and Diana Young every Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific, right here on the Bottom Line of Business Talk. Voice America Business. The bottom line in business talk. Voice America Business. Welcome back to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you would like to be a caller on the show, dial toll-free at 1-866-233-7861. Once again, that's 1-866-233-7861. And now, back to the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Live from the Empire State Building, you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the only talk radio show on the air focusing on issues relating to graphic design, branding, and culture. 
I am Debbie Millman, your host, and my guest today is the magnificent Milton Glazer. If you would like to join our conversation or have a question for Mr. Glazer, please call 1-866-233-7861. And Milton, I'd like to start this uh, part of the program talking about uh, some of your current work. I know that you have a book coming out in a few months called The Design of Descent. You have co-authored this book. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about it? Yes, it's a book I did together with uh, Mirko Lynch, who's a good friend of mine and a wonderful designer and illustrator. And uh, we realized that it, it was a good time to do a book about descent. Um, I had done some buttons for the Nation magazine, including one that read, Descent Protects Democracy, which is something I deeply believe. And um, we are in an odd moment in our political history where... Um, Dissent is implicitly and explicitly being suppressed in one way or the other. Certainly, a dissenting press has become almost invisible. And um, we thought that we would do a, a short history of dissent. There are several books about the history of dissent, starting with the French Revolution and earlier. But we thought that we would survey over the last um, decade, more than anything else, what was going on in the world. And so we collected a rather extraordinary number of pieces from all over, from Bosnia, from Palestine, from Israel, from certainly from the United States, England, France, and so on, of designers who wanted to protest. And I use designers in the broadest sense because many of them are not professional designers as such. But the issue about the book is how you design dissent, how you basically make things visible to people, how... Through words and image, images, you can uh, move people and make them aware of things or at least make them aware of what you have on your mind. So uh, Tony Kushner wrote a brilliant uh, introduction to the book, and it basically documents what's been going on all over the world over the last 10 years to protest either corporate or uh, governmental um, issues that we feel represent a kind of uh, overt uh, response to oppression and fairness. Anyhow, we're doing a show as well in June at the School of Visual Arts, uh, which will um, be about the same time that the book is being published, and then that show is going to travel all over. Wonderful. Um, why do you feel that in our culture, at this moment in time, the dissenting press is all but invisible? How did that happen? Well, I don't want to be simplistic, and I'm not that knowledgeable, but I have at least a, a certain amount of insight into it. Uh, what happened was corporate ownership, where seven corporation basically owns the media in terms of newspapers, television, and other forms of uh, communication, and that uh, even if you think about it uh, implicitly, as we know, corporations, business, and government are now uh, really one uh, system that you cannot quite separate the interest of business from the interest of government and the support of government by business, which our government refuses to alter. So we know that there is a kind of collusion between business interests and what the government is interested in. In fact, there's no separation between those objectives by and large. And because of that, the people, and journalists particularly, um, 
have been very intimidated by the fact that if you want to pursue a career in journalism and you get to be um, uh, objectified as being a troublemaker, you're not going to have much of a career. So part of the driving force in our country, of course, is career development and making more money. And so I don't think that a corporation has to tell its people anything. That they know that if they cause problems by speaking out, that their careers are in jeopardy, among other reasons. That's why there have been no follow-up questions to any interviews that the government has been giving out. The other thing government's been brilliant about is that they, if you don't cooperate with them, they give you no access. So they cut your legs off that way. In any case, the, our uh, political uh, geniuses, and I think they are geniuses, and I think the relationship between advertising and politics has become astonishing. It is not a coincidence that Karl Rove is the mm. most powerful man in America. Um, that whole kind of uh, uh, interaction has basically produced a toothless journalistic profession. There are well, very few journalists who speak up now of what's been happening. There are well, some, I, of course. Yeah, I mean, I find it interesting that you say that being a troublemaker now can ruin your career when 30 years ago being a troublemaker made your career. I mean, Correct. think about um, think about the whole situation you know, with Watergate. I mean, that's how a career was made, being troublemakers. Um, I think it's, it's an incredibly sad time in our culture when we cannot speak up and we cannot say what needs to be said, or if we try to, we're shut down as, as individuals or as groups. Well, the, the terrible thing about it is that it is not as overt as one would hope. This is, you know, the, the, what people have done is they have voluntarily withdrawn from asking the questions because they realized it was dangerous. The government didn't have to tell them to shut up. Their business didn't even have to tell them to shut up. But they knew what would happen if, in fact, they, they created difficulty. So it, it's a very difficult moment, but you see how easy it is to transform a democracy into a totalitarian situation. There is such a thing as a totalitarian democracy, and I guess we're beginning, I hope this is not true, but we're beginning to see us move in that direction. What do you think we can do to change that? Is there anything that designers can do to change that? I think designers can do only what good citizens do, which is to react, to respond, to publish, to complain, to get out on the streets, to publish manifestos, to be visible as much as they can. I mean, they can't do more than citizens can do, except they have one great advantage, is they know something about communication. Mm-hmm. And can hopefully persuade people with that ability to communicate. Uh, one of the true wonders of being a designer. Um, Milton, now it's the time in, in our broadcast for one of the show's weekly features. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. It's called my Pop Culture Quiz, and this is part of the broadcast where I ask my guests some questions just about things that are going on right now or off-the-cup topics that I'm just curious about or obsessing over. So they're just quick little questions um, right before we end the show. So um, first question, what is the quality you most like in a person? Oh, God, that's uh, the quality I most like in a person. I guess it's energy. Okay. Who are your favorite writers, top three favorite writers? Top three favorite writers. Oh, my goodness. Um, 
one, one favorite writer at the moment? Uh, what am I reading currently? Um, I, I like the Italian writers, Calvino and uh, people of that sort. I, I like, uh, I like, my mind is just blanked out. I'm okay, well, how about this question? How, about <laughs> um, how <laughs> one little known fact about yourself? One little known fact about myself. Um, when I was eight years old, I contracted rheumatic fever and I was in bed for a year. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Well, thankfully you got that. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's a little known. <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to go with a much easier question. Now, what's your favorite snack? <laughs> My favorite snack. My favorite snack is probably an orange. Oh, okay. Well, listeners, we have come to the end of our eighth broadcast, and I am so sad. I haven't been so sad to end a broadcast yet, and I'd like to thank my wonderful, fabulous, and beautiful guest, Mr. Milton Glazer. I couldn't be doing this without the kind and patient people at Voice America Business, Denise, Chris, Lori, Dion, my executive producer, Brian Travis. I'd also like to thank the staff and my partners at Sterling, especially Lisa Grant and Chris O'Rourke. Please join me next week as I welcome author of Infiltrate, the front lines of the New York design scene, Mr. Alexander Gelman. Thank you for listening. Milton, thank you so much, and see you next week. Bye-bye. Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters. Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business.